You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to NeuroFrontiers, produced in cooperation with the American Academy of Neurology. Your host is Dr. Anthony Alessi, Chief of Neurology at William W. Backus Hospital. Among the most baffling and often frustrating complaints that confront the physician is dizziness. Dr. Kevin Kerber is a board-certified neurologist and fellow member of the American Academy of Neurology, specializing in dizziness. He'll be discussing the approach and treatment of the dizzy patient today on NeuroFrontiers. Dr. Kerber is director of the Department of Neurology Dizziness Clinic and co-director of the Balance Disorders Clinic and Research Program at the Department of Neurology at the University of Michigan. Dr. Kerber, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you very much. Kevin, let's start with what you find is the simplest definition of the word dizzy. How do you determine what that means to each patient? Ah, that's a great question. The first thing I do is ask people what they mean by the term. Dizziness is such a vague term, it really doesn't give us much information unless they actually go through what they're experiencing. The most common cause of dizziness is really benign paroxysmal positional vertigo. Now, the American Academy of Neurology has released an evidence-based guideline. Can you tell us about that guideline? Sure. Benign positional vertigo is largely considered up there with the most common causes of vertigo and may indeed be. It has been known for many years now that benign positional vertigo can be cured at the bedside in a matter of minutes. There are not very many things out there in medicine, in particular in neurology, that you can cure at the bedside at all. And so what the Academy has done is performed a systematic review on the medical literature on the topic and come up with a number of recommendations relevant to patients who are diagnosed with benign positional vertigo, the most important of which is that there is very strong evidence to indicate that the most common treatment, the EPILE maneuver for benign positional vertigo, is highly effective. Well, tell us more about the use of the repositioning maneuvers. First of all, are they safe to be done by all physicians? Do they require special training? They do require some training. You have to be exposed to it, and that is probably one of the reasons that it is underutilized is people aren't trained in this area. But it's quite simple. It's something that you could probably watch a video of or have a video on hand when the situation arises. But it's also clearly one of those things that you have to go through and experience the patient evaluation before you become really comfortable with it. But the first test is the Dix-Hallpike test, really, which is the first part of the repositioning or the Epley maneuver, where you turn the patient's head to the side, have them lay down and look for the characteristic burst of an upbeat torsional nystagmus. And that's really the most important thing is that you really have to see that burst of upbeat torsional nystagmus to know that that's the cause. And once you identify that and decide that it's on, the next steps are basically rolling the patient over to the opposite side and coming back up, which gets the particles out of the semicircular canal. Can these maneuvers be performed, for example, in the emergency department where a lot of people present with vertigo? They absolutely can. There's no doubt about that. But it's a matter of people being comfortable and familiar enough with it to do it. I am aware of one randomized controlled trial of the Epley maneuver in the emergency room performed by emergency room physicians. And the effect was much less impressive and may have even been non-significant, I can't recall, in that trial. My guess is that either the patients weren't selected appropriately or that there was some problem with the maneuvers as they were performed. But clearly, the people that use this that are familiar with it find it remarkable. The effect is so dramatic, it's often like some sort of 
revival situation where the patient comes in desperate and you, they leave cured within a, a short office visit. And as I said, there aren't many things that you can do that with. Are there any special dangers to the repositioning maneuvers? There are no dangers with it as far as permanent health dangers. If patients are not properly selected, all you're going to do is potentially make the patient's symptoms worse. That won't lead to permanent effects. But, for example, another common dizziness presentation is vestibular neuritis or labyrinthitis. The symptoms differ from benign positional vertigo because they're constant and typically more severe. If a physician mistakes a vestibular neuritis for benign positional vertigo and starts doing positional tests and maneuvers on that patient, you're only going to make the patient sick and you're not going to help them at all. And it does come up. I work with residents here and I've been called to the emergency room on a couple of occasions being asked to come down and cure this patient of benign positional vertigo and it's readily apparent within a couple of minutes that the patient does not have benign positional vertigo and instead has vestibular neuritis. So you can make symptoms worse if you're not selecting the patients correctly. Well, let's follow that scenario a little bit further, Dr. Kerber. Say now you have a patient with vestibular neuritis. What's your next move here? The key is making the diagnosis, and that's based on the symptoms. The patient presents with acute, severe vertigo, nausea, and imbalance, but no other neurological symptoms. And on the exam, the characteristic eye findings are the key in that there's a unidirectional nystagmus that only beats in one direction. It never changes direction, even when you have the patient look in different directions. And then there's another test called the head thrust test or the head impulse test, which is incredibly helpful in making the diagnosis as well. Once you make the diagnosis of vestibular neuritis, there are no positional maneuvers. It's mostly symptomatic support, so medications to help reduce the symptoms. In addition, there is a randomized controlled trial looking at the use of steroids, a short course of steroids, prednisone, for patients with vestibular neuritis because the physiology, the pathophysiology, is thought to be similar to Bell's palsy. And there is some benefit with the use of steroids. It's not dramatic. The other intervention is vestibular rehabilitation, which when patients are early and symptomatic can be effective in improving the symptoms as well. How does this differentiate from Meniere's disease? Meniere's disease is the other classic inner ear disorder, and it's great that you bring these up because I I always teach that these are the fundamental aspects to evaluating patients with dizziness, is you have to really understand three disorders, benign positional vertigo, vestibular neuritis, and Meniere's disease. I think a lot of the uncertainty that comes with seeing patients with dizziness is not understanding these. Benign positional vertigo is recurrent positional attacks of dizziness. Vestibular neuritis is an acute constant dizziness. And Meniere's disease is recurrent attacks of vertigo that are spontaneous in onset. They come on without any trigger. And patients will experience the symptoms that will last generally for hours, a couple of hours of intense vertigo, nausea, and vomiting, whereas benign positional vertigo, the symptoms will just last a brief moment. The other key feature with Meniere's disease is over time, patients will develop hearing loss on one side. And initially, that hearing loss can be fluctuating. It can be confusing early on because some patients will present with recurrent vertigo but not appreciate the hearing loss, so it can take some time for the hearing loss to develop. But the key feature is recurrent episodes of vertigo lasting hours with a fluctuating auditory component. 
Dr. Kerber, I'd like to continue with this, but if you're just tuning in, you're listening to NeuroFrontiers on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and joining us to discuss the best recommended therapies in treating vertigo and the dizzy patient is Dr. Kevin Kerber, Director of the Department of Neurology Dizziness Clinic and Co-Director of the Balanced Disorders Clinic and Research Program in the Department of Neurology at the University of Michigan. Kevin, getting back to this, how do you differentiate now vertigo that may have a life-threatening cause? That's an excellent question. There was just a research study, a survey of emergency room physicians where they ranked the areas that they would like to see a clinical decision rule or to have decision support for. And the number one problem in the emergency room of adult presentations was how to differentiate serious or central causes of vertigo. Those causes are rare. There's no doubt about it that the inner ear disorders and other causes of dizziness are much more common, but those serious disorders do occur. I believe that the most important features to differentiate those are based on the history and the physical examination of the physician who carefully details the aspects of the presentation and then details the examination with particular emphasis on the eye movements. It's clear if patients have other neurological symptoms like weakness on one side of the body or slurred speech that it can't come from the ear, and so the suspicion of a central or serious disorder goes way up in that situation. But there are many patients who don't have those symptoms, and then it comes down to the exam where you look for the detailed neurologic exam to see whether there's any focal deficits on exam, but then beyond that, What are the eyes doing? What are the characteristics of the eye movements? The reason for this is because the inner ear follows the rules. There are clear things that disorders of the ear will lead to eye movement abnormalities, and the inner ear nearly always follows those rules. Essentially, it is incredibly rare for the inner ear to mimic eye movement abnormalities that only come from the brain. So the key is closely paying attention to what the eyes are doing, and sometimes that requires provocative tests like positional tests or gaze tests, having the patient look to one side or the other, and another test that's called a head thrust test that is very helpful in discriminating vestibular neuritis from an acute stroke. At the outset of the show, we talked about the frustration that many physicians feel about dealing with patients who are dizzy, but probably nothing more frustrating than the patient with benign recurrent vertigo, where it's coming back time after time after time. Any specific ways of approaching this patient in terms of chronic dizziness? Yes, I think the key in approaching any patient is first trying to see whether they fit into broad categories. And those categories are a peripheral inner ear disorder, which are the, the disorders we talked about, benign positional vertigo, vestibular neuritis, and Meniere's disease, versus are there characteristics of a central nervous system disorder? Are there general medical features that could suggest a general medical disorder, such as a cardiac disturbance? or low blood pressure, orthostatic hypertension, or even anxiety and depression. When none of those make sense, then you can arrive at the diagnosis of a chronic dizziness symptom, and if the symptom is vertigo, benign recurrent vertigo. The features that distinguish benign recurrent vertigo from Meniere's disease are the patients who have benign recurrent vertigo do not develop progressive hearing loss. There can be some auditory symptoms, but the hearing does not progress like it does with Meniere's disease. This entity has been described for many years. There is a lot of uncertainty that remains with it, but what seems to be the most apparent is it is most likely a migraine equivalent. And that's not to say that we think the headache is the cause. 
It's just that we believe that the mechanisms that underlie migraine headaches and other migraineous symptoms are the likely causes of benign recurrent vertigo and other forms of chronic dizziness as well. Kevin, what's the future in treatment of vertigo? Is it going to be medication? Is it going to be repositioning, exercise? What do you think it's going to be coming down the pike? It depends ultimately on the cause. I think we have very amazing treatments for benign positional vertigo. As I've said, there are not many things you can cure in, in a matter of minutes, and this is one of them. I think there are good therapies for vestibular neuritis, which is generally self-limited and runs its course, but a trial of steroids and vestibular physical therapy can help. There are also fairly effective treatments for Meniere's disease, which can also be self-limited. The real enigma is what to do about the patients who have chronic dizziness and benign recurrent vertigo. As I mentioned, we think that much of this might be related to similar pathophysiology to what goes on with migraine, and that's why it has the label of migraine equivalent oftentimes. And my bias is that the first step is always lifestyle modifications, paying attention to stressors in the life, sleep, regular exercise program, and foods that you put in your body. It comes down to those as the most important features. Beyond that, we do need some medication trials in this area because we assume that the medicines that are used to treat migraine headaches as prophylactic agents will have a benefit with dizziness, but there are no good research studies to indicate that in dizziness presentations, and all those medicines have the potential to cause dizziness as well. So when I talk to patients, it comes down to lifestyle modifications. I would love to see more of an emphasis on that and more research into that area as well. I just want to make one last point, if that's okay. Sure. I think there are two aspects when we talk about the best therapies for dizziness. One is, what should we do? And the second question is, what should we not do? It's very apparent that there are many things we can do in the medical system that make these patients worse. You may have seen this. I see this all the time. Patients who get a vestibular test, which triggers the dizziness symptoms, who then, because of some mild abnormalities, get an MRI, who then have some mild changes on the MRI, which makes them worried about multiple sclerosis when that is not at all the cause, and it gets into this vicious cycle and only adds to healthcare expenses. So there are two issues. What should we do and what should we not do? That's absolutely crucial to the evaluation of patients. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Kevin Kerber, Director of the Department of Neurology Dizziness Clinic and Co-Director of the Balance Disorders Clinic and Research Program in the Department of Neurology at the University of Michigan. Dr. Kerber, thanks again for being our guest today on NeuroFrontiers. Thank you very much. My pleasure. You've been listening to NeuroFrontiers on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. NeuroFrontiers is produced in cooperation with the American Academy of Neurology. For more information about this or any other show, please visit ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts.